Thanks a lot for coming back. Today I'm going to talk about Love's Labour's Lost. So I think I've done about 25 plays now. Um, the, all the other lectures are on iTunes. You, if you haven't found them yet. Uh, and you can see that I'm getting out of my comfort zone week by week by week. Uh, and Love's Labour's Lost is a play I've never really written about um, uh, until this lecture and haven't really thought about all that much. Um, it's not a particularly easy play, and I'm not sure it's yet a play that I absolutely love. Um, but I got more interested in it as I was thinking about it and hope I can try and convey some of the ways in which it might be interesting for you uh, working, working on it. So even the title of Love, Love's Labour's Lost is something of a tongue twister uh, and as I was working on it over the last week I wondered whether the question I should have uh, directly approached is whether it has two apostrophes or one which seems to have been one of the big questions of the 20th century. Uh, what does the title mean? Where do the apostrophes come uh, in the title? But we're not going to go there. There are a lot of mysteries about this play, and one of the things that I think talking about this play today will help us to think about is um, uh, Shakespearean mysteries. It's quite topical, given uh, some of you may have seen uh, the claim to, that, that a new portrait of Shakespeare uh, has been found, and that's a claim which rests entirely on uh, a kind of... Um, cryptographic, decoding, uh, secret kind of rebus sort of uh, way of thinking about Shakespeare, which of, w of which there's been a lot about Love's Labour's Law. So maybe we can think about that as a kind of methodology. The question that I've tried to cluster my thoughts around are, uh, is, what is lost? What's the idea of loss which hangs over this play? What role does loss play in its construction? And how might we be able to use the idea of loss to think about a play which many critics have been willing to lose. The 19th century critic and essayist William Hazlitt was one such. If we were to part of any, with any of the author's comedies, it should be this. If we were to part with any of the author's comedies, it should be this. Okay, so firstly then, the plot of Love's Labour's Lost. The King of Navarre vows with three of his noble friends that they will devote themselves to study and that they will abjure the company of women. The ink is still wet on that promise when a party arrives at the court. The French princess has come with her three ladies-in-waiting uh, on the pretext uh, of negotiating some kind of uh, territorial status about the province of Aquitaine on behalf of her father. So a king and his three noblemen, a princess and three ladies. What could possibly happen? Yep, they're all in love before we know it. In fact, they've actually met before, so they already know they are. Um, happily, they don't fall in love with the wrong person, so they're all happily set out into four couples. Of course, the men can't admit to each other that they have broken their promise. Of course, the ladies make them beg for it by covering their faces with masks so that they all make promises to the wrong one. There's a side plot of a crazy Spaniard, a pedantic schoolmaster, and a stupid constable called Dull. Some people pretend to be Russians. Uh, it's not quite clear in what sense they're Russians or what Russian quite uh, signifies, but they pretend to be Russians all the same. And another group acts out a play of the Nine Worthies of Antiquity. And they all talk. They talk a lot, they pun a lot, and they talk more. But that's actually pretty much it. 
If there was ever a comedy that revealed its hand a bit too early, Love's Labour's Lost must be it. As soon as the king says in his opening speech in the play that they are going to give up women, we pretty much know who's waiting in the wings. By the, act, by the end of Act 1, it's clear where this is headed. Acts 2, 3 and 4, therefore, are pretty much time fillers until we get to Act 5. It's hard to imagine a play where characters um, waste more time uh, talking, playing bowls, which must be an absolute, you know, the epitome of time-wasting, uh, put on plays, uh, argue about kind of etymologies and stuff. That's all they do, really, all the way through. Okay, so t to an extent, this is kind of true of all comedies. Girl meets boy, sometimes disguised as boy. They can't be together, unsupportive parents, uh, magic problems in forest, dressed in male clothing, boo, but then, oh, they can. Hurrah, the end. Shakespeare takes the structure of comedy, as we've discussed many times before in these lectures, from the Roman new comedy structure. And new comedy is uh, m most striking, perhaps, in its presentation of the blocking figure. This is a figure completely um, recognisable to us from uh, the modern incarnation of romantic comedy, a genre which we still pretty much have um, pretty much entirely the same, actually, as Shakespeare had it. So the blocking figure is a usually unreasonable, anti-comic patriarch who is trying to prevent the happy ending. Now, Shakespeare is adept in developing the blocking figure function so that we see a range of such figures. Aegeus, the angry father in Midsummer Night's Dream, is one example. The vengeful usurer, Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, is another. Malvolio, who won't allow cakes and ale, is yet a third. But in Love's Labour's Lost, it's hard to see what the blocking figure is. In this play, there is absolutely no reason at all why these eminently well-matched and symmetrical couples should not get married. There are no existing engagements, no parental interventions, no apparent inequality of rank, no problems with numbers, none of them is in disguise as someone other than they are. And so that business with which comedy generally concerns itself the clever outwitting of the blocking figure that culminates in Merchant of Venice, for example, in the showdown in the courtroom, that business is pretty much entirely missing in Love's Labour's Lost. Or a different way, maybe, of thinking about that is it's not so much missing as it is internalised. What's stopping these marriages is not some external blocking agent but something we might want to guess at as more obviously psychological. The reason the men cannot marry is because they have sworn willingly a vow not to. They're clearly not yet ready to break the homosocial bonds of study and to enter indi into individual relationships. And that process, as we've talked before, is really the process of romantic comedy for Shakespeare. Uh, not so much how women behave, although our tendency is to, is to think about that, but how do men behave? How do men break relationships, uh, their primary relationships with other men, uh, and instead make these relationships with women? So perhaps then this most apparently unpsychological of plays may hide a deeper truth about comic motivation. 
it takes inside the characters those elements of prohibition that comedy tends to project onto other figures. And in that, perhaps, it preempts the play where that's often said to be the case, the only case, or the first case in Shakespeare, much ado about nothing. Claire McCacken, editing that uh, play for the Arden series, says much ado about nothing is the first play where the blocking figure, or the, the elements that block the relationships continuing, uh, is psychological rather than external. It's, it's, it's because... Beatrice and Benedict can't bring themselves to admit that they love each other rather than that they're being blocked from outside uh, that, that brings about the comedy. But Love's Labour's Lost predates Much Ado About Nothing and may actually predate it in that, in that way too. But without an obvious blocking agent, however, the play loses those self-imposed difficulties by which comedy measures out its dramatic length. In romantic comedy, romantic partnerships must be extended and tested before they are finally resolved. People cannot just meet and fall into bed, or not in Shakespeare's comedies at least. We need to see the romantic relationship develop so that we can invest in it as our own narrative desire in the play. So comedies are all about desire, uh, but only in part the desires of the characters. Uh, perhaps the major desire is the desire of the audience to see things work out in a way which has been set up and established uh, and, and signposted. So we, we need to invest our narrative desire in the play, but we also need the consummation of that desire to be deferred, just like the characters in the play do, so that there is a play for us to watch. Love's Labour's Lost, I think, challenges many of these comic expectations. We talked in the lecture on Romeo and Juliet about the notion of inevitability as a feature of tragedy. So inevitability as a feature of tragedy. There we identified, via the critic Susan Snyder, the opposite concept of evitability, evitability, the comic possibility to change, to take evasive action around obstacles that becomes the leitmotif of comedy. So comedy and evitability the doom-laden tra trajectory of tragedy as inevitability. But here in Love's Labour's Lost, as we can see, it's comedy that's absolutely inevitable. Four women, four men, go figure. Perhaps all Shakespeare's plays are actually a little bit light in terms of plot, or maybe, in fact, he keeps all the plot for histories, which have too much plot and doesn't have enough left for comedies and tragedies. Certainly, Act 4s are not usually a high point of Shakespeare's art. If you ever wondered why you're always flagging by 9.30 in the theatre, it's more likely to be his fault than yours. But even in this wider context of how plot works for Shakespeare, I think Love's Labour's Lost is really definitely on the plot-deficient side. Nothing really happens. The first loss, then, is plot. Perhaps this helps us make sense of one early reference and puzzling reference to the play in a pairing with a now unknown companion piece. Writing in 1598 in his uh, printed commonplace book Pallidus Tamia, Francis Mirrors gives an early appreciation of Shakespeare's talents. Uh, and he also helps us to sort of stake out a chronology of Shakespeare's writing by this point, by the end of the 16th century. For comedy, says Mirrors, witness his gentleman of Verona, his errors, his love labours lost, 
his love labours won, his Midsummer Night's Dream and his Merchant of Venice. Uh, in parenthesis, Miris also uh, gives us for tragedy Richard II, Richard III, Henry IV, King John, Titus Andronicus and Romeo and Juliet. So what's interesting here is the two parallel comedy titles, Love's Labours Lost and Love's Labours Won. We don't know now what this second play refers to, whether it's a lost play or an alternative title for one we already have. Uh, and the, the identity of Love's Labours Won has been uh, one of the brilliant uh, mysteries or gaps into which uh, Shakespeare studies and Shakespeare kind of conspiracy studies have happily whirled. Um, there's a rather uh, great version of it in, in one of the Doctor Who episodes called The Shakespeare Code, where Love's Labours Won uh, is made up by witches and is going to kind of um, is going to bring about catastrophe as things always are in, in, uh, in Doctor Who. In the 2014-15 season, the Royal Shakespeare Company played these two plays, Love's Labour's Lost and Love's Labour's Won, with the second heading up a production of Much Ado About Nothing. Another common scholarly opinion is that the missing play now goes under the title All's Well That Ends Well. The sense, though, of the pairing of Love's Labour's Lost and the mysterious Love's Labour's Won is that perhaps Love's Labour's Lost, the play we have, is part of a double bill in which a second play provides a plot supplement or a balancing narrative. This is a common place of uh, kind of medieval story collections or story structures uh, where we tend to get um, paired stories which show us two sides of the same question. So, for example, we might get um, a play about a um, nagging woman uh, or, or a story about a nagging woman on the one hand, and then the next one is about a tyrannical husband or uh, a violent husband. So there's, there's some sense of two kind of extremes or two plots which together give us some sense perhaps of a harmony or a complete whole. So these stories, uh, such as um, we can see this in the Canterbury Tales, for instance, or in Boccaccio's Decameron, stories that tend to be written in pairs, not by presenting the same characters in a part two. So it's not so much like Henry IV, part one and two, where we've got a continuing story and continuing characters across the two parts, but by deepening largely social themes by, by presenting an alternative take on uh, the same question. We might perhaps think here about Johnson's Every Man in His Humour and Every Man Out of His Humour, as titles which clearly are in that same kind of parallel relationship as Love's Labour's Lost and Love's Labour's Won. But uh, in the Johnson case, we don't, what we're not getting is the same characters uh, continuing the story where we left off. We get a different group of characters uh, approaching these, uh, the theme of the humours in different ways. So maybe what's lost is half of the play, the missing Love's Labour's Won. And maybe what Francis Mary's evidence suggests is that the loss in the first title is only temporary, is only provisional. It awaits a winning in the second part. Lost and won are in a kind of balance across the two parts. So maybe what's lost in Love's Labour's Lost is its companion play, something that comes after it and something which in some sense completes it. Now, what everybody says about Love's Labour's Lost is that it makes up for these two potential losses of plot and of its original play supplement or companion. It makes up for these losses with 
language. Now, of course, plot, like everything else in the theatre, is actually language too. But if we were to ask about Love's Labour's Lost, what is it about? The answer would have to be, it is about language. If the plot is simple then, the language is endlessly elaborated. And characters are absolutely self-conscious about this. They all know this is what they're doing, and they point it out to us to make sure that we do too. So we have quite different kinds of speech, uh, but all of it exaggerated in different ways. The flowery rhetoric of the male courtiers, the preposterously latinate pomposity of the schoolmaster Holofernes, the zany linguistic exuberance of the Spanish knight Armado, malapropisms by the country bumpkin Costard. And one of the ways uh, Love's Labour's Lost makes its drama is by bringing these kinds of language together into juxtaposition. Many scenes in which different kinds of language clash together animate the play. The difference between Armado's hyperbolic language and the reductive haughtiness of his rustic sweetheart, Jacanetta, or the French ladies who uh, get a letter mistakenly, which was intended for someone else. Language in this play obfuscates, decorates, elaborates much more than it illuminates. The miscarried letters in the play are pretty obvious symbols for that failure of communication. Costard, the messenger, muddles his commissions and delivers them to the wrong recipients, just as communication between characters or between characters and audience is intercepted and interrupted. There are long, punning routines in which every possible meaning of sore or light or juvenile is explored. And characters talk about their language explicitly. As Holofernes and Armado trade polysyllables, the boy notes wryly they have been at a great feast of languages and stolen the, and stolen the scraps. They've been at a great, great feast of languages and stolen the scraps. Barone, the wisecracking leader of the king's friends, describes the Spaniard. Armado is a most illustrious white, a man of fire new words, fashion's own knight. Those fire new words is one of the things the play is very interested in. This is a play where two-thirds of the lines are rhyming, uh, so it's, it's not blank verse, blank meaning unrhyming, uh, but rhyming couplets. Uh, and these emphasise both the kind of inevitability of the plot. So a rhyming couplet is like um, a really quick piece of plot. We know that once the rhyme word is set up, there's a limited number of things that it can rhyme with, uh, and it's usually pretty obvious what it can rhyme with. Uh, but they also draw attention to the artificiality of language uh, in the play. But Barone's uh, couplet emphasises the importance of language in characterising Armado, but also draws attention to his own rather prissily archaic word for man, white. So even as Barone mocks Armado on linguistic grounds, that's to say, his own language is placed under particular and sceptical scrutiny. At the end of the, um, of the play, Barone realises honest, plain words best pierce the ear of grief. Honest, plain words best pierce the ear of grief. A series of monosyllables which enact its own premise that 
to speak plainly uh, is, is to be most clearly understood. But then he goes on to elaborate that uh, in terms which show how difficult it is for characters in this play to step back from their own linguistic affectation. Oh, never will I trust to speeches penned, nor to the motion of a schoolboy's tongue, nor never come in visit to my friend, nor woo in rhyme like a blind harper's song. Taffeta phrases, silken terms precise, three-piled hyperboles, spruce affectation, figures pedantical. These summer flies have blown me full of maggot ostentation. I do forswear them, and I here protest by this white glove, the white glove of Rosalind, how white the hand, God knows. Henceforth my wooing mind shall be expressed in russet yeas and honest cursy noes. And to begin, wench, so God help me, law, my love to thee is sound, sounds crack or floor. Rosalind's dry retort, sounds, sounds, I pray you, shows how difficult it is for Barone to break out of pretentious rhetorical forms. It's a speech all about how his language is going to be uh, clear and straightforward, uh, which is anything other than straightforward, uh, which piles up uh, images, uh, which enjoys rhetorical construction, uh, and which, which takes uh, a dozen lines to say, uh, to elaborate the thing he said more simply in a single one. Not to mention, uh, it's one of the many glitches in the first quarto text, quite a problematic text uh, of the play, for, published in 1598, is that Barone delivers a version of this speech twice. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of an error, but it's an error which is very much in keeping with the play, uh, that Barone uh, can't stop talking uh, and can't stop using these uh, elaborate phrases. It speaks then to the plays and the character's preference for language over substance. Now, we shouldn't take it amiss, I think, if we acknowledge that the most successful play for this, the most successful setting, sorry, for this play in modern performance has tended to set it in Oxford. This has worked to emphasise the youth of the protagonists and a, a, some kind of sense of their life as sheltered and inward looking. Navarre's idea of a little academe, a little academe, that's what he's going to set up with his friends, is almost always envisioned as the enclosed, preferably cloistered stage set of an Oxford quadrangle. Of course, we all talk here in an incomprehensible and affected argo that is part Latin, part private slang, and part unnecessary pretension. <laughs> Barry Kyle's 1984 production described the young men as pompous highbrows in graduates' gowns. And ten years later, Ian Judge established, established late Edwardian Oxford for his setting, complete with a college bar decorated with painted blades and team photographs, and with dreaming spires the backdrop to what one review called a Rupert Brook reading party, when the men make their adolescent pact to study and to avoid women. Kenneth Branagh's musical film of 2000 created quads and punting scenes and a lovely uh, musical number in a, kind, in a version of the Radcliffe camera. It's interesting that these kinds of readings tend to coincide with an idea that Love's Labour's Lost is a very early play. In fact, it's a play we can't really date very easily at all. It could be anywhere from kind of 1592-3 to 1595-6. Uh, as if it is itself youthful, exuberant, undisciplined, unsophisticated, 
rather than perhaps being about those things. Uh, and as such, it might be interesting to look alongside other plays designated early. Uh, and we've talked before about the way early has quite different um, uh, associations of value from um, a very established critical term, late, for Shakespeare's um, uh, final plays, the romances. So if you want a play that's self-conscious about language and about the linguistic debates of the early modern period and about the uses and abuses of rhetoric, Love's Labour's Lost is exactly the play for you. It seems to me a play in which plot gives way almost entirely to style and that language is its main topic rather than merely its formal vehicle. And one consequence of that linguistic texture is a tendency in the play and, its, and in its performance towards stylization. I think this is a play that actually works really well and interestingly in performance, and it's one way um, I'd encourage you to, uh, to look at it. There's one critic who says that the, um, the developments in, in Shakespeare in performance have really given only two things, two substantial things to Shakespeare criticism. One is that the history plays do well in a sequence, I'm not so sure about that. But the second is that Love's Labour's Lost is a play which works on the stage. So these are the only two gains for scholarship from uh, the long history of Shakespeare and performance. But it's quite interesting in Love's Labour's Lost. I think it is a play uh, very much worth trying to see or to see bits of. So one consequence is a tendency towards stylization. As Kenneth Branagh's film ably expresses, the four couples at the play's centre already give Love's Labour's Lost the feeling more of a dance than of a drama as if stage symmetries are more important than the distinctiveness of comic individuals. Where Shakespeare gives us multiple common cu comic couples in other plays, the effect is usually one of differentiation or contrast. So we compare the robust relationship of Rosalind and Orlando against the more timid encounter of Celia and Oliver or the more pragmatic coupling of Touchstone and Audrey in As You Like It, for instance. Or we set uh, a hero... Uh, and Claudio, the, the, the kind of um, uh, inexperienced, uh, innocent, kind of high romantic lovers of Much Do About Nothing against the um, uh, sort of screwball comedy of Beatrice and Benedict. So the point of the couple seems in those plays to give us a contrast, contrasting views of marriage, contrasting views of courtship. Here, though, in Love's Labour's Lost, the effect of having multiple couples is the effect of duplication rather than contrast. Writing in the 1920s, the theatre director Harley Granville Barker described Love's Labour's Lost as akin to the artifice of a ballet. So akin to a ballet. And suggested that the actor should think of the dialogue in terms of music. Lots of subsequent critics have likened the play to a comic opera such as Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. In the early 1970s, W.H. Auden and his partner Chester Kalman worked on an opera with Nicholas Nabokov, cousin of Vladimir, based on the play. Uh, they described the play, Auden's very interesting on the play, saying it's absolutely light, uh, light and frothy until the very last scene, which he calls a morality play ending. In Thomas Mann's novel Dr Faustus, the imaginary composer has written one opera based on Love's Labour's Lost. There are lots of settings of Love's Labour's Lost songs, uh, by Stravinsky and by Finzi, among others. Branagh's film of 2000 develops this musical impulse, drawing out from um, extant 
songs in classic Hollywood musicals a kind of counterpoint to Shakespeare's play. He recognises that the, these set-piece linguistic moments uh, are quite easily translatable uh, in, in the genre of the musical. So one way to think about the, pl the play's detailed linguistic texture has been to, to compare it to other art forms, uh, to music particularly, uh, and to, to, or to dance or the combination in opera. Or sometimes the detailed linguistic texture of the play has been compared to the texture of painting, particularly perhaps uh, to Baroque artists like Watteau and, um, uh, and, and uh, Guercino, who particularly painting these kind of Arcadian settings, these aristocrats at leisure in these sort of rustic or rural Arcadian settings. What's important, I think, about these art forms and as parallels to or translations of Love's Labour's Lost is that they're all quite radically anti-narrative. They're not narrative forms. They recognise that the value of the play is in texture rather than plot. As the theatre director Carol Brahms wrote, Love's Labour's Lost is less a play with a beginning, a middle and an end than a pervasive atmosphere a pervasive atmosphere. Okay, so, so far then, we've been talking about an absence of plot substituted by self-conscious experimentation in the linguistic sphere. One major loss, then, in the play, uh, a play about loss, is plot. But let's just challenge that description of the play for a moment. In fact, something quite important does happen in Love's Labour's Lost. The play does have one rather significant twist up its sleeve, Almost at the last minute in Act 5, a character we've never met before, called Monsieur Marcade, enters with a sombre message for the princess. She preempts this message perhaps because of what he looks like. This is Marcade. I'm sorry, madam, for the news I bring is heavy in my tongue. The king, your father, dead for my life. Even so, replies Marcade, my tale is told. We don't hear anything else from him. Bacardi is an interesting figure. He's like a kind of reverse deus ex machina, the figure from classical drama who steps in unannounced at the very end to bring an apparently irresolvable situation to final judgment. What Marcade does is to step in at the same point, but to do exactly the opposite. He brings an apparently entirely resolved situation that we, that's been resolved you know, since the very beginning of the play, the four couples um, have recognised their affection for each other. So he, begins, he brings that resolved situation into turmoil, so he undoes the resolution rather than bringing it. Only at the end of the play, that's to say, do we get that grit, the blocking figure, we might have expected to be its main business. It's a real and unexpected challenge to generic expectations. Bringing death into comedies is not really on. The point about comedy is that the dead are usually pretending, death is threatened but not enacting, enacted because the genre is all about ongoing life. The early modern playwright Thomas Haywood characterised uh, in a nicely formalistic way the difference between tragedy and comedy by means of a kind of inversion. In comedies he writes, turbulenta prima, tranquilla ultima. In tragedies, tranquilla prima, turbulenta ultima. Comedies begin in trouble and end in peace. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. By this measure, Love's Labour's Lost, having spent four and a half acts looking like the most obvious comedy ever, suddenly turns tragic at the end. 
It's a more problematic ending in structural terms than those comedies often given serious stage treatment because of their unresolved conclusions, plays like All's Well That Ends Well, or Measure for Measure. Responding to the death of her father, the Princess of France, now its queen, wants to leave Navarre immediately. All is revealed, the men confess their loves, and the king asks, now, at the latest minute of the hour, grant us your loves. The response, though, is unexpected. The princess's reply is distinctly uncomic. A time, methinks, too short to make a world without end bargain in. Nice phrase. A time, methinks, too short to make a world without end bargain in. Again, this is a shock to expectations. Comic romantic couples never seem to feel uh, that they've done things in a, in a terrible hurry or that there isn't time to make such a momentous decision. It's part of the rush about comedies that they are uh, immediately in love and immediately married. They cheerfully get together within minutes of meeting and by the, uh, by the end of the play, two hours later, they're absolutely firm, unbreakable couples. But what the princess does here is to introduce a quite other timescale right at the end of the play. If for my love, just she's addressing the king of Navarre, if for my love, as there is no such cause, you will do aught, this shall you do for me, your oath I will not trust, but go with speed to some forlorn and naked hermitage, remote from all the pleasures of the world. There stay until the twelve celestial signs have brought about the annual reckoning. If this austere, insociable life change not your offer made in heat of blood, if frosts and fasts, hard lodging and thin weeds nip not the gaudy blossoms of your love, but that it bear this trial and last love, then, at the expiration of the year, come challenge me, challenge me by these deserts, and by this virgin palm now kissing thine, I will be thine. So sending the king off for 12 months of monastic living returns him pretty much to the state of sombre solitude with which he attempted to, to begin the play. The other women instruct their suitors similarly, and Rosalind uh, uh, adds to Barone's obligations. And therewithal, to win me, if you please, without the which I am not to be one, you shall this 12-month term from day to day visit the speechless sick and still converse with groaning wretches, and your task shall be, with all the fierce endeavour of your wit, to, force, to enforce the painted impotent to smile. Barone's answer, to move wild laughter in the throat of death, it cannot be, it is impossible. Mirth cannot move a soul in agony. Having turned romantic comedy into something else, Rosalind instructs the sardonic and humorous Barone to try to turn real-life tragedies into laughter. The consciousness of generic inversion is everywhere. Our wooing doth not end like an old play, Barone says ruefully. Jack hath not Jill. These ladies' courtesy might well have made our sport a comedy. The king's answer, come sir, it wants twelve months and a day and then twill end, gets Barone's wry reply, that's too long for a play. The ending of the play is a song by Spring and by Winter, capturing an unexpectedly bittersweet conclusion. What is lost in the end is the promised pairings of romantic comedy, the labours of love that the play had seemed so complacently to endorse. So far then, we've talked about the absence of plot and the play's extravagant displacement of action with language. 
and about the pleasures of stylizing the play, as in, or as, as, for example, in music or dance. And then we've talked about the generic instability that comes unexpectedly with the figure of death, Marcade, at the end. Those idealised Arcadian pictures of Watteau and Poussin often carried a memento mori, such as a skull or a tomb, or the motto, et in Arcadio ego, I, death, also I'm in Arcadia. Marcade is that memento mori, the grim reaper watching the beautiful young things playing croquet in the quad. So what's lost here registers a more existential sense of life's transience, a loss of innocence or something like that. The end of Branagh's film fast forwards through this time of abstinence, figuring the couples separated by wartime, by the Second World War, and ultimately reunited, this is all in a kind of wordless uh, tableau at the end, ultimately reunited, older, sadder, wiser, and thankful to be together. All those Edwardian settings for the play and performance are redolent with that sense that, in Philip Larkin's phrase about the First World War, never such innocence again. It's not just, that's to say, the men who have to grow up. There's something about the age, something about the the time uh, that has to mature. Of course, this is an argument that only can justify an aesthetic of lightness or emptiness or frippery by making it serve an ultimately serious philosophical point. That is one of the problems about the study of comedy. Uh, The play's fripperies become all the more poignant in the shadow of the trenches. The silliness of the plot is pointed up by the suddenness of the conclusion. Perhaps we can only really justify comedy to ourselves by uncovering its occluded darkness. Certainly, the dominant trend in early 20th century scholarship on the play was to uncover a seriousness that was allegorical. This is a play, those critics felt, that cannot possibly be taken at face value. There must be something hidden deeper underneath. The idea that Love's Love is Lost is a mystery to be solved is very evident in its critical history. Introducing the play in the 1940s for the Arden series, Richard David believed, hopefully, that that tricky play had found its moment in the golden age of detective fiction, as if it were a kind of poetic Agatha Christie. Many of the um, related interpretive attempts have focused on the idea that the characters in the play are disguised or satirical portraits of real Elizabethans. The title page of the 1598 quarto indicates that the play was performed before Queen Elizabeth. The attempt to identify a courtly or coterie audience rather than the general audience of the public stage has been one way that critics have tried to understand or (coughs) to construct its deeper meaning. Francis Yates, for instance, wrote extensively about the play's links to the so-called School of Night, a phrase which exists, which appears in Love's Labour's Lost, who were a group of atheistic freethinkers gathered around Walter Raleigh, including <coughs> George Chapman and the Italian thinker Giordano Bruno. So, uh, Yates suggests that Barone is a portrait of Bruno. She makes the unlikely name of the schoolmaster Holofernes into an anagram for John Florio, the Italian translator, dictionary maker, and transmitter of Montaigne's essays, who clearly Shakespeare did know. She's one of many scholars to puzzle over the nonsense word in the play, honorificabilitudinatibus. Costard's uh, word um, has been variously translated 
to reveal secret messages in the play, including that it was really written by Francis Bacon. In fact, this is an... I'm going to read it again. It's an enjoyably long word, uh, a bit like Mary Poppins' Supercalifragilistic or the place of that impossibly long-named village in Wales that has a certain comic currency in works of the 1590s and beyond. But the argument here is that something important and topical has been lost in the play's transmission into the modern period. That Love's Labour's Lost is a play peculiarly dependent on a knowing coterie audience, and that these important resonances have been lost over historical time. In some ways, the specifics of these arguments are less important than their overall thrust, that the play must be pointing to something beneath its elaborately decorative linguistic surface, that this plotless jeu d'esprit is not sufficient, not complete, without a detailed political or interpersonal subtext. So this is a play then, apparently thought incomplete at, at its time of publication and performance, and supplemented by that companion play, Love's Labours One, which has been given an alternative method of completion or supplement through these busy, scholarly, allegorical readings. Somehow, the primary meaning of Love's Labour's Lost often looks to be somewhere other than the play itself. This turns it into a helpful Shakespearean case study. Should we take our lead from the play's own self-conscious sense of formal structures and linguistic variation, and thus give it a kind of formalist analysis. Is that what it wants? Does it want close reading, uh, an understanding of rhetoric, uh, a kind of aesthetics of uh, the detail? Or should we hereafter its apparent allusions outward to construct a contextual, allegorical, or more topical one? Coded interpretations of Shakespeare seem to me um, generally pretty unconvincing, although often fun. But one last interpretation of the play as a kind of off-key Romana clef does seem to me suggestive. Writing in 2014, Gillian Woods argues that there is something inescapably topical about the names in Love's Labour's Lost. The King of Navarre was the prominent Protestant figure in the French Wars of Religion during the 1580s and the 1590s. The success of his French Protestant cause was regularly prayed for in the Elizabethan liturgy. In July 1593, Navarre took the politically expedient decision to convert to Catholicism in order to secure Paris. Marlowe's massacre at Paris, in, with which Love's Labour's Lost might be said to be in a kind of extended intertextual dialogue, had already depicted this topsy-turvy religious violence and conversion on the stage. The name Navarre, then, was associated with oath-breaking in a brutally sectarian context. And this redolent name is flanked in Shakespeare's play by numerous other names from the religious politics of the period. Barone, Longueville, Germain, Moth, Macade, and Boyer are all names that have topical illusions uh, and real-life uh, people to, to attach them to. It can't be a coincidence. And, of course, the oath-breaking that is so associated with the historical Navarre is one of the play's own major themes. Navarre promises to abjure women. Circumstances immediately conspire to make this vow impossible to keep. And the play echoes with the repeated wor words swear, forswear, oath, vow, promise, break. 
Searching for these words in the play reveals a network of illusions that keep the breaking of a promise at the centre of Love's Labour's Lost. Remember, the, queen, uh, the, the princess tells Navarre she can't marry him, your oath I will not trust. Uh, he's already established as somebody uh, who, is not, uh, who does not keep his word. I don't think that's to say that in some way Love's Labour's Lost is an allegory of the French wars of religion. But there is something going on in this juxtaposition of this stylized and stylish plot and the violently political onomastic associations of Shakespeare's characters' names. It's as if a slapstick plot in a modern film gave its goofy characters the names Bush and Blair. It would have a meaning, even if that meaning was something about the jarring of the illusion of the names in an apparently light-hearted context. Something similar is happening here. Either the allusion to the sectarian wars of religion deepens the play and adds a topical dimension, or it points up the absolute absence of such dimensions in Love's Labour's Lost. That debate between substance and style that is intrinsic to the play, that's to say, is also intrinsic to its criticism. So then, we've been thinking about a play about which critics have struggled to know what to say, and perhaps that's the point of Love's Labour's Lost. But given that this play is itself in danger of dropping out of the working repertoire of most readers and students of Shakespeare, including me, it's in danger of being itself lost and not much looked for. Let's finish by trying to knit it back into the canon and suggest some of the ways it could connect with other Shakespearean plays. Taking up the play's musicality and stylization alongside, say, Romeo and Juliet, Richard II, Midsummer Night's Dream could work, I think, so that rather than seeing it as a disappointing romantic comedy, we view it as a formal structure which explores non-naturalistic forms of speech and interaction in a balletic or operatic way. Branagh's film was a terrible flop, but its premise, seeing the play's linguistic set pieces as musical numbers, is a good one, I think, and one that could be extended elsewhere in the canon. There's a generic playfulness or uncertainty about the ending of this play that we tend to associate more with the so-called problem plays, or at least with later comedies. It's interesting to see it done here. And the idea that verbal events are more important in Love's Labour's Lost than active or gestural ones points this play towards the great dilemma of Hamlet, similarly punctuated by linguistic happenings when we might expect that something real ought to be done. Its discussion of art, nature and life and where these big topoi overlap or are juxtaposed also anticipates the painterly qualities of the winter's tale. A couple of last suggestions. There's a play within a play here, The Pageant of the Nine Worthies, that's very rarely put alongside the mousetrap and Pyramus and Thisbe, but it's something that might enliven what's sometimes a slightly tired debate about metatheatricality in those two plays. And part of that, that play uh, introduces, in stage directions, unspeaking characters called blackamoors, silent but presumably highly visible outsiders that are the counterparts to Aaron and Othello, but almost never discussed in accounts of Shakespeare's treatment of race. So these elements are all themselves, I think, in danger of being lost when the play is routinely dismissed as lacking interest, maturity 
or psychological insight. Next week is the last of my lectures uh, for this term. I'm going to be talking about Timon of Athens. And the central point I'm going to try and explore is uh, what can we do about collaboration in this play, a play written with Thomas Middleton. How should that, how does that affect the way we read this play uh, and what are the ways you could extend that outwards in the canon? Thanks a lot.